Episode number 59 of the Metrospective coming your way. Pete McCarthy along with Tim Britton. And uh, t- hold on one second. I got a, uh, a cookie break I got to take here, Tim. You know, I need to get the milk out. We, that's how we should do these podcasts with some milk and cookie and join the, uh, the cookie club they got going on over there. Have you not been doing the podcast with Insomnia <laughs> Cookies next to you? Because that might explain the weight gain that I've had lately. I hadn't thought of it. Uh, I guess uh, I got to get with the cool kids here. I mean, it's just like fascinating to me. How do we go from 30 years ago? Guys are hanging out, drinking beers after the game, talking about that kind of thing. And now we're at the uh, the milk and cookie generation. But I, I will say this. It, it is meaningful. That is important stuff to be able to do when you you know start looking at some of the things that they're talking about. They're talking about the game, giving each other some tips and helping each other along the way as they try to sort it out what it is to be a successful baseball player. Uh, it was um, you know, an interesting report from Anthony DeComo. Yeah, re- really good story from Anthony on on how, who is it? It's J.D. Davis, Jeff McNeil, Pete Alonzo, Michael Conforto, Brandon Nimmo, and, and Dom Smith, I think, mm-hmm. you know, yes. compri- con- constitute the cookie club. That was uh, the core. Game. And then some other the guys The core going of the cookie out. club, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, getting insomnia cookies or, or other brand, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they're going after an advertising opportunity there with insomnia <laughs> cookies in particular, uh, but meeting after games to, to kind of break it down and kind of, you know, it shows, I, I think during the second half of last season, we got a sense for uh, a unity among that, that younger core, the position player core uh, of the Mets. And this is just, uh, this just furthers evidence of that, uh, that, you know, these guys look, they, they sure seem like they like each other, uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go out and win the division, but if you were pressed to pick between a team liking, e- liking each other and not liking each other, you'd rather they're having milk and cookies than, say, bar fights with each other or something like that. Probably the better way, though. Sometimes the bar fights uh, play out well in the long term. <laughs> sometimes. Uh, but uh, Tim Britton, if you hear him chomping at some point, uh, it'll be the cookies and the milk washing it all down. Uh, I'll be McCarthy here. It's her 59th episode. We've named it for Dan Worthen. Uh, we name all of our episodes here at the Metrospective after uh, a former Met or an event or a season, a year, whatever it might be that corresponds with the number. You get a little higher up, and the Keith Hernandez numbers start to dry up a bit. And uh, at 59, Dan Worthen is as uh, impactful a Met figure as has worn that number in our estimation. So Dan Worthen, former pitching coach of the Mets, he gets the name's take of this episode. It is our first episode beyond the paywall at The Athletic. So uh, I'm sure we have some new listeners, and we really appreciate you uh, coming on board here with the Metrospective. Look, Tim Britton is with this team all the time, covering this team, unique perspectives on the New York Mets that you're going to get throughout the season. And you get our kind of oddball way of breaking it all down along the way. And it's always, as we know, Tim, interesting with the Mets. And we'll be dropping episodes every Tuesday and Friday morning, uh, you can expect. So make sure to subscribe, like, review, all of that fun stuff. And uh, we very much uh, appreciate the support. Uh, Right, Tim? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll slip you twenty bucks for those nice things you said about me, because uh, I know how you really feel. So you know, <laughs> I think you're gonna give twenty bucks to everybody who did that and uh, said something nice <laughs> about you. Are you up for that? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, cookies? like I can 
I can afford that to a certain extent. I haven't had that many people say nice things about me in life, but uh, eventually it might it might get too much. I don't I don't well, buy votes. I don't buy votes. But you've been saving that money for a long time, so you can uh, you can start spending it now. So anyway, we'll have all of uh, all that for you. We're excited to be uh, out and about, and I I think uh, a little easier for some to to listen to here. Uh, so let's get into the the news of the week here. As far as the Mets are concerned, there's a New York Post story on Monday that the Mets and the Yankees have discussed a Stephen Matz deal. It would seem to be unlikely for the millions of reasons why a Mets-Yankees deal would always be unlikely, but it does lead to an interesting situation from the Mets' point of view because we've talked about, Tim, how the Mets might structure their pitching staff with six starting pitchers, Michael Walker, Rick Porcello added to the fold, and Steven Matz seemingly competing in order to hold on to his spot in the rotation in the back end. They could bullpen a little bit and start Seth Lugo occasionally. Uh, there are some different directions here, but should the Mets be so comfortable with the status of their rotation that they would be willing to trade somebody like Steven Matz for what you would consider an impact offensive player, the player mentioned in the post story was Miguel Andujar. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I don't think the Mets are in a position to really be like shopping Stephen Matz or any of their starters for that matter. Uh, you know, it, it uh, all of these things depend on who's coming back in a deal. But I think from my perspective, it doesn't make a lot of sense. If you deal Matz, it doesn't like it doesn't save you any money necessarily because the, the, the five million dollar salary he's making this year just basically goes to Waka if he's in the rotation because of the way his incentives are structured. Uh, so I, I, it doesn't save you much financially. It really, really weakens your, your pitching depth where if you have another injury beyond that, then we're, we're right back where we were basically at the start of the offseason talking about Walker Lockett and Corey Oswald and those guys going into the rotation or you're weakening your bullpen by moving Seth Lugo into the rotation. So I feel like you've reached this point in spring. You've built your team a specific way. Uh, it's it's got there's got to be a lot there to entice you to change the structure of your team. And I know Miguel Andujar is a, a nice player, uh, but isn't he just like like he just seems to be another one of those guys who can hit but doesn't really have a, a defensive home and certainly wouldn't really on this roster any more than some other guys. They've already got enough of that style of player. So I think it would have to be a different kind of package for Steven Matz to really make the Mets think hard uh, about moving him, you know, on the first week of March. I love Andujar as an offensive player, though. I and mean, he had a terrific bat a couple of years ago, could have won the AL Rookie of the Year award. He can hit for some average. He doesn't strike out a ton. There's clearly some power in that bat as well. And I think, all right, well, let's say they did trade Matz for Andujar. A couple of things. One, you know, Andujar would play third base and then, you could shuffle Jeff McNeil around, play him in left field some. I think that would be kind of an admission that Johannes Cespedes isn't going to be a key part of things for the Mets. And then where I do think it gets interesting as far as the rotation depth, if the Mets love what they're seeing from David Peterson, their former first-round pick, to the degree that they're comfortable with him as insurance in that rotation, well, then it's not totally, well, something goes wrong and that's it, you're screwed. At least you have somebody that you could fall back on. And Peterson, I mean, he's clearly got a lot of talent, the former first-round pick. Yeah, I mean, he's he's had a nice spring so far, but I think that's a, a pretty big leap to expect him to be, uh, you know, an average back-end starter right now out of double-A. I think that's, that's probably uh, 
too big of a leap to, to think reasonably about at this point. Uh, and if you're building your team around the rotation, if your idea is that this team is going to be good in 2020 because of its rotation uh, and, and because of the depth of that rotation, that you've got legitimate options one through six, uh, taking one of those out uh, at, at this point in the spring just, just seems like it's... Uh, you know what cutting off your nose to spite your face something like that it, it just it, it's robbing peter to pay paul one of those one of those um terrible cliches I, I just don't think it makes a lot of sense unless the yankees are desperate enough to really bowl you over with something yeah and, and look i i don't find the mets yankees part of this enticing because they've they haven't made a significant deal in decades and to expect that that is somehow going to change we go through this time and again uh, right, the tabloids put Jacob DeGrom and Noah's Cindergarten Yankee jerseys on the back page to rile everybody up. It, it's just, we've seen this too many times. It's too difficult for these two teams to come together, but it becomes more interesting, I, I think, in the fact that if you do have teams that are looking for starting pitching, maybe they do come to the Mets. Even Dusty Baker, the manager of the defending AL champion Astros, said when he was talking with reporters about Matt's competing for a spot, he's like, Hey, we'll take them. We'll put them in the rotation. So, you know, the fact that yes, the Mets have an advantage with these guys fighting out these spots at the moment, uh, you know, you could, there are multiple ways to take advantage of it, whether you put walk it in the bullpen or maybe you make a trade. If everybody is healthy, that final week of spring training, I, I don't mind taking a chance. And I, I don't think this team is just built on the starting pitching and that's it. There are a lot of different ways that, you can win, that the Mets can win, and if you're getting somebody who's going to help right away in a position of need, uh, namely, you know, I think this is where we would agree, somebody who would play up the middle, center field, uh, be more athletic, and just a different kind of player than the Mets have had, and you make a fair point on Andujar. What's the difference between he and, say, J.D. Davis at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think there are there are players out there where it would make sense. The Mets would become immediately a better team if they made a, if they moved to Stephen Mets for someone who was an everyday center fielder for them, something like that. But I don't think that player is on the Yankees, and the Yankees are the team that uh, at this point is probably the most desperate in their starting rotation in baseball among contenders. So I, I you know, it's it's nice to think about. It's fun to to, to have some fodder for us on a. Uh, Tuesday morning uh, to talk about in, in March, but this is not really the time where you're making these kinds of decisions about your roster construction. How about you? We had talked about Michael Conforto a couple of podcasts ago, and I recommend those of you who do subscribe to The Athletic, check out Tim's uh, interview with Michael Conforto, getting into his head as the expectations have always been there for Conforto, and it feels like he hasn't quite met them. We talked about comparing him to, say, Christian Yelich, who took off once he went to Milwaukee. Uh, but we, we did a lot of that on the podcast, but certainly recommend uh, you listen to that or uh, read that article up on The Athletic that Tim had. And then another article we could talk about here, Tim, uh, Ken Rosenthal uh, giving his opinion on Luis Rojas becoming the Mets manager and thinking, hey, I, I don't think this is – anything that Mets fan hasn't thought of, but maybe the Mets come out ahead with the way this whole thing played out after Carlos Beltran is let go after uh, his role was uncovered in the Astros scandal. And here comes Luis Rojas, 38 years old from a baseball family. And it's really just a question of whether or not he is ready in a major market with a team trying to win now uh, to get things going. But this is a, a big time managerial prospect at the very least getting an opportunity. Yeah, we, we talked about it in January when Rojas got the job that 
know, he might have been more qualified to be the Mets manager off the bat than Carlos Beltran ever was because of the experience in the minor leagues and the familiarity he's got with this specific roster in particular. Uh, but, you know, the, the key point that Ken's making is kind of, uh, will the Mets allow him to be the manager he needs to be? I think your one issue with Rojas is his lack of major league experience, his lack of kind of facing the firestorm that is the New York media on a regular basis and being the forward-looking face of your franchise, your public spokesman, twice a day, every day for six months. Uh, and the Mets have a tendency to make that difficult, <laughs> you know, with, with the way that Fred and Jeff Wilpon, you know, Fred Wilpon likes to be in the office for the manager uh, before games. Jeff Wilpon likes to kind of micromanage uh, how what how a press conference comes off or how a press release is issued that kind of thing and and it seemed uh really throughout mickey calloway's two years there that he was always trying to say the right thing to impress the people his higher ups rather than just kind of saying what was on his mind uh and that's what that's kind of the the line that rojas has to walk because that's that's where his his you know he doesn't have the experience there that's that's maybe his weakest point is what's he going to be like uh, as the public spokesman of the franchise, uh, and that's where the Mets kind of make it most difficult. So that's, I think that's the one thing that concerns you about him as your manager. But you know he's handled it decent, pretty well so far. I don't think there's been really any issues uh, no. to this point in spring training. Uh, so so it's looked good, but you know you've got to wait really until that first crisis point when you get in the regular season and you've got a little bit of a losing streak or uh, an internal rebellion or that kind of thing. But Callaway, even the uh, opening press conference. You could, he messed some things up there, right? We're going to love the players, and that was taken poorly on the back pages. You kind of had an awkward story connecting him to Casey Stengel as part of that as well. And there were some warning signs right off the bat that communication might be an issue for Mickey Calloway, whereas Luis Rojas, look, I, I understand it's only three weeks into this, and we don't really know until, you know, it's June, they lose seven games in a row, you're trying to describe the 30th loss of the season and come up with a different way to talk about it. But I, I haven't noticed Luis Rojas look uncomfortable, really, with the spotlight on him beyond just some nerves uh, talking at his opening press conference because he had never been in front of that kind of crowd uh, with a microphone in his face before. Yeah, and I think you've seen him get a little bit more comfortable as time has progressed, as the spring has gone on. Uh, you know, the, the very start, he was kind of, we're, we're leaning on the coaches. You know, I had this guy in the minor leagues, this, you know, I remember Seth Lugo in 2013, that kind of thing. Uh, and he, he hasn't done that as much of late. Uh, so, and you know, it's, it's something he's got to grow into a bit, but uh, I think everything else has, you know, what, what you thought he was good at coming into spring training, which is that familiarity with the players and the, a, a solid relationship with most of, of the players in that clubhouse, that seems to have been borne out so far. And he developed a good relationship with Robinson Cano last year. And you consider Cano's relationship with Brody Van Wagenen uh, was his client. And, of course, Brody went out and traded for Robinson Cano once he became a front office executive. So th there's no doubt that they talk. Uh, the fact that Cano seemingly backed Luis Ross, I'm sure, had some playing on the Mets thought process as to who would take over after Carlos Beltran was let go. Um and I think Cano, it's kind of an interesting year, right, where he hit better at the end of last year, but overall such a disappointment. And what if he really struggles and we're at Memorial Day and Luis Rojas has to decide, am I going to pull the cord on Robinson Cano and take out a you know, respected veteran? Uh, and look, I understand he had the suspension for steroids a couple of years ago, but this is a guy who's got a Hall of Fame caliber 
resume based on the numbers that he's put up in his career, uh, that that could be a, a tricky decision and, and one of those things that Rojas might have to handle this year. Yeah, you know, it's you want to read into what Cano does in spring training uh, to see if he's carrying over what he did at the, the end of last season, really the last two months. Obviously, that was abbreviated. He missed a month because of the injury, but, you know, he had a really nice four-day stretch after the trade deadline. I think he got two or three hits each day uh, and then had a nice month of September to kind of carry that over, make the numbers look a little bit more respectable down the stretch. Uh, I, I don't think you can really read into spring because he was so good in spring training last year, hit over 400 in spring training and led the, the Grapefruit League in hitting that it's can't really extrapolate from that. Mm. Um, but it... It does. That is, you know, as we look at potential roadblocks and obstacles uh, for the 2020 Mets and for Louis Rojas, uh, that's one one big one. Is what if Cano, if we're sitting there on, like you said, Memorial Day, and he's hitting this, the way he was for most of the first half last year? Uh, you know, you've got a guy in Jeff McNeil who could slide over to play second base. You've got uh, J.D. Davis who could slide in and play third base. You might have Cespedes or Dom Smith as left field options. Who knows where Jed Lowry is at that point? You might have other options that make you better. And this, it's not like it's, you know, oh, it's the last year of Robinson Cano's contract. We can get through a couple awkward months here. It's you've got three years after this with him uh, at this point. Uh, and, you know, this is a guy who you're counting on to be uh, more of a veteran presence in your clubhouse and, and more of a leader. Uh, and, you know, I, th I think I, I wonder if Cano had any part to play in someone like Yuan Assessment is coming out and, and speaking a, a couple days after saying he wasn't going to talk to the media. Mm -hmm. You know, Cano is the kind of guy who knows how to handle the New York media uh, and when it's negative against you uh, in an instance like that. But uh, that is, you know, on the list of things that could go wrong this year for Rojas and the Mets, I think that one ranks highly. That that said, I've seen some projections on Cano, you know, kind of like the the Steamer and the Pakoda projections that have him having a worse year than he did last year, and I yeah. think that's low. I I would if you're telling me the over under on Robinson Cano's OPS next year is 7.36, which is what it was last year, I'd probably take the over. I would agree with that, and as far as the projections go. Yeah, I, I wouldn't expect Cano to be worse than last year. And I also wouldn't expect the Mets to have a top five bullpen like a lot of these numbers have been spitting out. So <laughs> you kind of take it all with a, a grain of salt, some of the plus category, some of the minus category as far as the uh, the Mets are concerned. But I'll tell you what might help Robinson Cano. He's got to get in that cookie club. <laughs> the uh, the snickerdoodles, right? That's what or the, <laughs> that's the, the key. peanut butter cups. That was the key, they said. Yeah, well, McNeil's the Snickerdoodles, and then I think uh, Alonzo and Davis are the peanut butter because they got a whole system set up there. Uh, but but seriously here, just for a moment, uh, we'd like to just take a minute with you as we're now beyond the paywall. So we're going to have some different aspects of this podcast that we are going to be bringing in. And we really use uh, your support and your help with something. It'll take you a minute. Uh, but if you look at the description, there is a link to a survey uh, if you guys could, it's 11 really simple questions. Uh, it would help us out a lot to determine the direction that the podcast can go and make sure that elements that are added to it will apply to you in some way and not be uh, a total waste. So if you can help us out here with the retrospective, again, it, it'll be less than a minute 
And you could find in the description for this podcast uh, a link to that survey, and uh, that would help us out a, a bunch. We very much appreciate it and appreciate you listening to the show and supporting the show. Uh, and if you could do that for us, um, that would be great, and I think would help us out and help all of us out uh, moving forward here with the Metrospective. Uh, another thing I wanted to touch on here, Tim, because I'm, I'm really I'm just sick of seeing this now, and this has been building over time. <laughs> How many freaking updates do we need on what Jared Kelnick is doing in Seattle? I mean, look, I'm angry about this deal, too, and the way that it turned out, and it didn't look great at the time. They didn't win that first year. Cano and Diaz were negative players. I mean, Look, I get all of it, and Jared Kelnick has the ability to be a special player, but I do not need week-by-week updates on what this kid is doing in Seattle. I agree. I thought that the story that Rustin Dodd wrote for The Athletic about Kellenick and kind of, you know, what he was to the Mariners, what he might end up being to the Mets. Great story. Awesome story. Everything else written about Kellenick lately, <laughs> sheer crap. We don't need any of it. I think we really like Rustin wrote over. the I can't get away off. from it. <laughs> it is, uh, you know, it's... It, it, it's part of the, you know, if, if Cano and Diaz had been good last year, uh, we're not talking about this, but it's it's the combination of those guys struggling so much and that Kellenic, who, you know, I think Mets fans were concerned about giving up at the time. No one, no one was totally cool with that uh, at the time, uh, but that he had the kind of year in the minor leagues last year where it really accelerated his timeline, uh, that he plays a position that the Mets still could use a guy to play in center field. Uh, whether he stays there long term, I'm I'm not sure, but he certainly looks like he he could be uh, in the majors as a center fielder by early next season, if not by the end of this season. Uh, that's certainly an accelerated timeline from what a lot of people thought when the Mets drafted him sixth overall out of high school a couple of years ago. Uh, so yeah, it's it's frustrating, obviously for Mets fans. Uh, there's nothing they can do about it. They're not going to get him back. You can't you can't uh, undo the trade as much as you might want to. So they I think it's, it's probably I think. I think we have reached the time. There's no trade rescission here. It's not like uh, when the, the Red Sox had that opportunity with Drew Pomeranz a couple of years ago. Um, I think it's, it's t- it is now officially, after The Athletic has written about it, time to move on. <laughs> All right. So I'm not trying to kill Rustin here, but still, I just I can see in the headlines. Like, okay, I know he's going to be good. I know I'm going to hate this trade for many, many years and many decades. Let me breathe for a second here. In the middle of, uh, of spring training. Oh. Where do you think your angst about this ranks next to, like, uh, White Sox fans hearing about Fernando Tatis Jr. and the James Shields trade for them? That That is probably higher because, I mean, they've been trying to build prospects there forever, and the ones that they give up turn into becomes, you know, potentially an MVP candidate at shortstop. That would probably infuriate me even more. So, it's you James know, you Shields. got that going for you. <laughs> right. well, yeah, I guess. All right, good. Uh, so the, the Mets are half a step ahead of the Chicago White Sox. <laughs> Whoopity-doo. Um, all right, so next episode will be our 60th of the Metrospective. The number 60 in Mets history has been worn by three players. Scott Schoenweiss, who has a fake Twitter account or something. John Roush and PJ Conlon, uh, who had a little bit of time uh, a few years ago from Ireland. Uh, so what, what do you say we do here with the 60th episode? Who should we give a, a, a tip of the cap towards? As much as uh, I remember Jean Rauch, uh, I don't know why I said his name as if it were French there. <laughs> Jean Rauch. Six, eight uh, tattoos. John Rauch. You say like he's a poet. <laughs> 
as much as I remember him for accidentally breaking John Farrell's jaw when they were both with the Blue Jays, uh, and John Farrell's got a sturdy jaw. Uh, I think the, the best way, I think there, I've, I've figured out a workaround here so as not to uh, name it after any of these three gentlemen. Um, I think, you know, 1960 uh, was the year that the, uh, the Mets were awarded as a, a, an expansion franchise by the National League. It was late October of 1960 that Houston and New York were officially granted uh, National League franchises. And the man who brought the, the Mets to New York, uh, William Shea. I think, I think we can make this the William Shea episode. A guy who, I think more so than a show in Weiss or Rauch or, or Conlon, probably deserves an episode named after him. No doubt. Bill Shea making it happen for the Mets. Try to create the Continental League after the... Giants and Dodgers left, and this is this is why we have Mets baseball because of uh, of Bill Shea. So I'm I'm all about it. Number sixty, uh, named for him. Uh, so we'll have that coming your way on Friday morning. All the latest, what's happening, what's happening with the Mets, and uh, you know some non Mets Yankees trade rumors. Whatever pops up. Uh, we will have for you on the 60th episode of the Metrospective. But that'll do it for the Dan Warthen episode. A tip and a cap to the old pitchy coach for Tim Britton. I'm Pete McCarthy. Enjoy your night. You're going to have to hit up Duffy's. Adios. <laughs>